Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey. Teaching about religious freedom is rooted in the idea of human dignity. In fact, the church's key document on religious liberty says that the right to religious freedom has its foundations in the very dignity of the human person, as this dignity is known through the revealed word of God and by reason itself. But what exactly is human dignity and how does it provide the foundation for religious freedom? Christopher Kayser is here to explore these questions with us. Dr. Kayser is professor of philosophy at Loyola Marymount University. He has written 16 books, including, just to name a few, Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, The Search for a Meaningful Life, Disputes in Bioethics, Thomas Aquinas on the Cardinal Virtues, The Seven Big Myths About Marriage, and A Defense of Dignity. He recently contributed an essay on human dignity to our Freedom blog, which can be found on our website, www.usccb.org freedom. Professor Kayser, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, my pleasure, Aaron. Well, before we get into what human dignity is, I was thinking that it might be a good idea to just go straight into the so what question. Why even have this discussion at all? It is my experience in working for the Catholic Church, um, working especially in the advocacy space, that these terms, human dignity or dignity of the human person, they get thrown around a lot and start to have gone kind of a buzzword sort of quality. I wonder if you could help us out here. Why does human dignity matter? Well, if you're going to have a just society, it seems to be quite important to think about this question of who counts and who doesn't count. Because if you look at history, there's been many, many cases where people have divided society into two different groups. And on the one hand, they say, if you're like me, if you're white or a man or rich or whatever, then you count. But if you're different than I am, if you're maybe a woman or a person of color or a poor person, well, then you don't count. And this has been a recurring uh, phenomena throughout history. And so the idea of dignity is to capture what it is about being human that makes us count. And dignity just comes from a, the term meaning worth, worthwhile, having intrinsic value. When you talk about a human being having dignity, that's just another way of saying that a human being should be treated as an end in themselves. And so in a way, this is the fundamental question. If you're setting up a community to figure out, well, who is really gonna count? Who deserves respect? Who needs to be treated with due care? and then to decide uh, you know, who doesn't count. Because everybody recognizes that there are some things that don't really count. I mean, a rock, say, doesn't count as a voting member of the community. Uh, you know, a glass of water doesn't count as a, as a member of the community that has basic dignity and rights. Now, the Catholic view is that every single human being should count, regardless of any characteristic, regardless of how old they are or their religion, or their ethnicity, everybody should count. And if you want to, we can talk a little bit about why the church holds that view, but it's not really unique to the church. It's really held both by people in the church, but also by people outside of the church, by various philosophers. I was actually gonna thank you for mentioning that it's also held by philosophers, because I think um, that's sometimes the struggle. You know, We live during this time in which just the scientific something that can be proven, you know, by science, right, that there are males and females and 
a woman can't become a man. And basically my point is like that, you know, does who says who has human dignity, who says what is human dignity, right? And you could have the Catholic perspective, the philosophy, the perspective of uh, philosophy, but is that, you know, you might have also a scientific perspective or people who reject science or, so I guess my question is in this world of so many different perspectives, right? How do we as Catholics kind of operate where we're also citizens of this country, right? Where we also have this religious freedom. So how do the two meet up together when we have our own Catholic perspective on what is human, dig uh, human dignity and who has, who has dignity, but also we have religious freedom. So who says, I guess, is my question. Yeah. So the question who says is really a great question for many different considerations. So if we have a club and I want to make the mascot of our club, you know, a hawk, and you want to make the mascot of our club a dog, you might come up with a question, well, who says, who determines who the mascot of our club is? And maybe in one kind of club, it's the president, maybe in another club, all the people vote, maybe in another club, just those members who have been members of the club for more than 10 years vote. So you can have lots of different views. But for other questions, the uh, question of who says is really irrelevant. So for instance, let's say I make a claim, two plus two is four. And you say, well, who says? Well, it's, it's nobody who says that makes it true that two plus two is four. That's a mathematical truth we discover, right? Or the truth that force equals mass times acceleration. And you might say, well, who says? Well, no one's determining that. That's not like a rule of a club that we're making up as we go along. Rather, that's a truth about reality that we learn from physics. So no one really says or determines that. So what about the idea that all human beings have human dignity? Who says that's true? Well, I would say it's not a matter of determination or it's not like determining who the mascot of our club is gonna be, but rather it's a truth that we can discover or it's a truth we cannot discover and we can ignore. And we're lucky here in the United States because as, uh, as Americans, we actually have this truth as part of our founding uh, documents. So very famously in the Declaration of Independence, there's a, a line that says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now that claim, right, that all human beings are endowed with inalienable rights, um, Jefferson, when he wrote it, said all men, but what he means, of course, is men in the sense of like a man-eating lion, right? I mean, no woman says, well, it's a man-eating lion, so I don't have to worry about it. It won't eat me, right? I mean, a man-eating lion eats men, children, all human beings, right? So it's men in that inclusive sense. So all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. The idea there is that Jefferson's expressing, it really is that all human beings, whether black or white, whether male or female, young, old, whatever, deserve basic respect. And this is, you might say, the American proposition. So as people in the United States, this is very much bread and butter of what our own political legacy uh, you know, gives to us, right? This idea of all human beings being created equal and being endowed with inalienable rights. So for Catholics, this is very much, you might say, something that is totally consistent with our own tradition. Right, so we as Catholics base um, our beliefs in part on the text of Genesis, right? That all 
human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. And also on the great example of Jesus, who showed through his actions that he valued and loved all human beings, right? Jewish human beings and the Samaritan, right? Healthy human beings and the leper, men and women, those that are innocent like his mother and those that are caught guilty in adultery. Jesus, every action shows this kind of principle of basic respect and more than respect, frankly, a love for all human beings. So, you know, as Catholics, I feel like we're in a very good position in the United States in the sense of not only does our faith teach us that we ought to love and respect all human beings, but also our political tradition that comes to us in the Declaration of Independence also affirms the very same thing, that all human beings are made in uh, endowed with, with basic rights. So I find it very much a convergence and a harmony between, you might say, what we learn from faith and what we learn in our American political tradition. Well, to kind of stick with this point about that there are different ways at arriving at the truth about human dignity, um, and, and you just mentioned the Declaration of Independence um, and the American founding, in, our, in the essay that you contributed to us, I believe you, you bring in Immanuel Kant as another figure, I believe you even refer to, to um, some ancient philosophers. So as you point out, there are different ways of getting at it. I wonder though, if you could say a little bit about with these traditions of human dignity, I mean, are there, are, are there some differences there in the way we, we use these terms? Um, I don't want to get too like technical and all that sort of thing, but it, it seems like in the Catholic world, this is kind of an issue sometimes about like, we, we can affirm truths of faith and reason, but you know, what, what's distinctive about Catholicism, for example, is a thing that's often coming up. I'm sure in the, in the, in the university world, this is often a big, a big topic of conversation. Um, so I wonder if you could, could speak to that issue a little bit. Sure, sure. Well, there definitely is an overlap, as I've been arguing. I mean, you have philosophers like Immanuel Kant, who has as a fundamental principle what he calls the categorical imperative. And the categorical imperative has different formulations, but one of them is to respect humanity, whether in your own person or in the person of another, always as an end in itself and never to use humanity simply as a means. Now, I take this principle to be uh, affirming human dignity. You find a similar affirmation among Stoic philosophers. So how then is uh, Catholicism or Christianity distinctive and different? Well, I wouldn't say it's different in terms of affirming the idea that all human beings deserve basic respect, that's similar. But how it is different is the basis or grounding for that belief. So you can have the same conclusion, you know, the number seven, but there's different ways to get to the number seven, right? Four plus uh, three is seven, uh, 49 divided by seven is seven, right? 14 minus seven is seven. So there's a bunch of different ways to get to it. Um, and you can still hold the same, you know, basic belief. Now, what's distinctive about Catholicism, I'd say in part, is that this basic belief in human dignity is greatly enhanced. Because on our view, not only is it true that every single human being has dignity, but in addition, it's also true that Jesus of Nazareth was God in the flesh. And Jesus of Nazareth loved and even suffered for every human being. And Jesus of Nazareth wants to have a relationship with every human being. In fact, Jesus wants to feed us with his own body and his own blood. Now, all those truths I just talked about are truths that go way beyond what a Stoic philosopher could have proved or argued or thought about. We're talking about truths that are truths of revelation. 
So there's no philosophical proof or demonstration or argument, say that the body and blood of Jesus are truly present in the Eucharist. Now, as a Catholic, I believe that, and I think it's reasonable to believe that, but that's not a matter of philosophy. That's not something that philosophers can show or demonstrate. You can look all you want in Aristotle, and you're not going to find any treatment of, you know, the body and blood of Christ in there. It's just not in there. So we as Catholics do have truths that overlap with truths that can be understood through philosophy, but we also have truths that have been revealed by God that transcend those truths that we can know philosophically. And again, those truths are like truths about the sacraments, truths about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, truths about Jesus as fully God and fully human being. All those things are what Aquinas would call mysteries of faith that go well beyond what philosophy can show. Well, you mentioned the point, the, the thing about um, not treating people as a, as a means to some other end. And I wonder if you can now maybe talk more about that. That's part of, you include that in, in the essay, this point um, that to treat people with dignity um, or an ethics of dignity as you discuss it, it means that we treat people um, as objects of love rather than as means to some other ends. Um, can you say a little bit more, you know, what you mean there? Yeah, well, I think the most obvious and blatant examples of using someone simply as a means would be to make that person a slave. So if I make you into a slave, I'm treating you basically like a tool. I'm treating you as if you were a cell phone or something. Now, I use my cell phone all the time, and, and that's fine to use a cell phone as a tool, because a cell phone is a tool, <laughs> just a thing. But human beings aren't just things. They are, as Kant would put it, they're beings that don't have a price, but rather have dignity. So, you know, using someone as a slave is one example. Another obvious example would be murdering someone, right? If I kill somebody to take their stuff, I'm using them simply as a means to getting their stuff. But in a less egregious example, think of stealing. Let's say I steal your car from you. Well, that is a way of me using you. Why? Well, because presumably you worked for hours and hours and hours to make enough money to buy your car. And then if I steal your car from you, what's happened? Well, I'm enjoying the use of your car. And in effect, what happened is you worked for hours and hours and hours for me without uh, your consent, right? So I'm basically taking your labor as if you're a slave and taking the fruits of your labor, your car, and making use of that. So the idea of using someone simply as a means extends to obviously killing somebody, obviously making them a slave, but even things like stealing from someone else is a way of using someone else. Now, it is, it is not a form of using someone, for instance, to pay for their services in a legitimate business exchange. So for instance, if I take my car to the uh, gas station and I pay for someone to change my oil, that's not using the car technician as a slave. Why? Well, because the, the person changing the oil has freely agreed, presumably, to take a job in the gas station, and I'm freely agreeing to pay him to provide the service. And both of us uh, are free to not do that, right? I can take my car somewhere else. I can change my oil myself. I can not drive a car and walk everywhere. So I don't have to do it. I'm freely choosing to, but I don't have to. And likewise, the person who's changing the oil is not a slave there, right? He can say, I quit. I'm not going to work here. Right. So both of us are freely entering into this agreement. And so that is not me using him or him using me. I'm respecting him as an end in himself. He's respecting me as an end in myself. And we're freely agreeing to this business exchange. So that's not using someone simply as a means. I can see 
already where you're sort of implying ways when you, with some of the examples you're bringing up, bringing up things like like slavery or talking about things like business exchanges, the issue of, of property, all of those sorts of things you're bringing up start to kind of point to this idea of human dignity having political implications. We would say that having a, a culture that supports or that respects human dignity is one where there, where we don't have slavery. Then you can get into to trickier issues about things like what about just wages and things like that um, when you're talking about freedom and, and somebody being free to work in the gas station or not work in the gas station. So, so we can start to get, you can get into trickier things and you can have some kind of obvious conclusions. Can you talk a little bit about this? What are, what are some political implications of human dignity? Uh, and then also, I think we need to get to the, since this is about, um, this is a podcast focused on religious freedom. Why does human dignity matter for, for religious freedom and for conscience rights? I mentioned that the, our main document on religious freedom is called literally of human dignity. Those are, that's, that's the title of the document. Uh, so what's the connection there between religious freedom and human dignity? Well, I'd say the connection between religious freedom and human dignity uh, is that part of uh, religious freedom involves a fundamental respect for the conscience of individual people in their relationship to the ultimate questions. So you might say you, one of the things that's distinct, uh, distinctive of human beings is that we ask and answer ultimate questions like, does God exist? And if God does exist, how should I relate to this God? And when we're talking about those kinds of questions, those are, you might say, religious questions where you're trying to think about your relationship to the ultimate reality that exists. And because God is a God of love and God wants us to love him and to love other people, part of respecting other people is to respect their freedom. That is to say, God respects our freedom to love him and to love other people. And we too should respect people's freedom to love God and to love other people. Now, if I were, try, if I were to try to force someone to say, love God, or force someone not to love God, both of those would be violations of their conscience and therefore violations of their basic human dignity. And so if we're going to respect human dignity, part of that is to respect people's freedom to form their consciences properly so that they are free to love God freely. They're not forced into this. This is something they freely do. And so that's part of a basic respect for the human person. Now, to get to the beginning of your question about the political ramifications of dignity, I'd say one of the most fundamental is that all human beings, if they have dignity, deserve to be treated uh, equally under the law. So what that means is that the law should not have double standards. It shouldn't be that if I'm black and I murder somebody, well, then I get the death penalty. If I'm white and I murder somebody, well, then I get 10 years in prison. Well, that's not equality under the law, right? In other words, whether I'm black or white, the, if the law says, you know, people who murder should be, you know, sent to prison for 50 years, well, that's what the law holds for everybody, black, white, young, old, or whatever. So part of having equality under the law is that the law ought to be blind, you might say, with respect to things like race, or with respect to things like sex, or for that matter, with respect to things like religion. In other words, there shouldn't be one standard, one legal standard for Catholics, and then a different legal standard for Protestants, and then a third legal standard for atheists. 
right? It shouldn't be the case that while well, running a red light is, you know, a huge crime if you're Catholic and it's kind of like a minor crime if you're Protestant, but if you're an atheist, it's fine to run a red light. That's, that's crazy, right? I mean, there should be equality under the law for people of whatever religious belief that they happen to have. So those two things, uh, I think, in a way, go together, this idea of political implications for human dignity. And those would basically be equality under the law. But on the other hand, also a political ramification for human dignity in terms of religious freedom. That is to say, if it's true that all human beings have this dignity, and part of that dignity is to ask and answer these questions about the ultimate sources of meaning and reality, including how we relate to God, well, then the state should not unnecessarily and intrusively interfere in that sphere of how I'm asking and answering these ultimate questions. So for instance, in a totalitarian state, you'd have the state dictating to citizens what they can and cannot believe, or dictating to citizens how they can and cannot worship, or dictating to citizens and pushing, putting pressure on citizens to, what would you say, discharge their religious duties in such a way that it's pleasing to the state or pleasing to the king. That is a very dangerous thing if we're also going to affirm basic human dignity. I want to um, push you a little further on the on that particular question because there have been a lot of voices, writers, you know, figures in recent years, especially that question some of that. What they would say is something along the lines of, "Well, yes, everyone has human uh, has human dignity, but you don't have a right to to undermine your own dignity." And you would be kind of undermining your own dignity if you participated in or if you worshiped God in the wrong sort of way, or if you if you used your conscience to to do something that is is objectively bad or something like that. How do, how do you respond to someone who, who raises that objection, who says, well, actually, in some cases, the state coercing people on matters of religion and conscience is a, is a way to affirm human dignity. Well, I think there's a grain of truth to that. In other words, the fact that I believe something is true and my conscience tells me something does not mean that my conscience is correct. And that also doesn't mean that the state must allow me to do whatever it is that my conscience tells me is okay to do. So let's take a, the example of maybe I have an erroneous conscience and I think, well, it's fine to kill a three-year-old. In fact, I think it's a good idea and I ought to, I must kill my three-year-old daughter. Well, I think the state has every right to step in and say, look, you can believe whatever you want, but when it comes to actually killing other human beings, you do not have a right to carry out that belief. So conscience can make a mistake. And that's why we have a very uh, strong obligation to properly inform our consciences. It's not enough just to say, well, my conscience says to do this and that's the end of the story. Because if that were right, then every single person would be their own uh, ultimate judge uh, of everything, right? But rather, conscience itself is responsive if it's properly formed to the truth. And so that means that if I think something is the case, like I should kill my three-year-old daughter, um, I have a very serious responsibility to form my conscience properly. And I think in a case like that, every person of goodwill, if they think about it for, say, three seconds, can come to the conclusion that well, it's actually not a good and just and right thing to kill your three-year-old daughter. And so the state does have a duty and responsibility to limit the actions that I undertake, even in some cases, if my actions are actions that I in mistaken conscience believe are justified. 
And so again, there'd be many cases of this, you know, maybe a racist person has a mistaken conscience and believes it's okay to, you know, harm black people or something. Well, again, it's perfectly within the realm of a just political order for the state to come in and stop and punish that kind of behavior. So I, th I think I, I think it would be a mistaken understanding to say, well, conscience has a uh, conscience should be protected and respected. Well, therefore, the state can never do anything to punish actions that arise from conscience. I think that's um, a false conclusion to draw from a legitimate truth. So I, I'm just thinking of how this would apply to things like things like hate crimes, right? Where it's almost like certain crimes because of why they were perpetrated or who they were perpetrated upon have been considered to be more egregious, particularly crimes against people of same-sex attraction, right? Has, can, can be considered as a hate crime. So going back to what you were saying of, you know, equal protection, everybody should be equal under the law, right? So from the philosophical Catholic perspective, right? How does a, a how do we apply that to things like hate crimes? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and as far as I know, the church has never uh, officially taught anything about hate crimes. So I'll be happy to answer the question, but I want to make clear that I'm just saying my own personal opinion, which as far as I know, has no, uh, is not a matter that's settled sort of by church teaching or by the teaching of the U.S. bishops or anything like that. But my view would be something like this, that a crime is, uh, is wrong, regardless of the subjective hate or lack of hate in a person's heart. So if I murder somebody, that's a crime and that should be punished. And whether in my heart I hated the person or loved the person is really irrelevant. In other words, sometimes people murder people allegedly because of kind of a misguided love. Right. You hear of crimes of passion where someone murders, they find their wife in bed with a lover and the person kind of goes crazy and murders them. Well, I would say, regardless of the fact that, that this crime arose because of my love for my wife or something, that, that doesn't make it any less wrong. Right. In fact, it's, it's, it's in some ways worse in a way for me to kill someone I have a special obligation to love. So I, I, I don't know if, I guess I question the idea that crimes should be distinguished by what is or is not allegedly in someone's heart, whether in their heart is hatred or in their heart is love. Um, I think that's very more, very morally relevant. In other words, when God, who does see the heart, looks at our actions, then God, since he knows the heart, really can judge whether this is motivated in this sort of hateful way or not. And I think that makes a big difference in terms of the moral judgment that God could give. But in terms of legal judgment, I think that more has to do with our exterior actions. That is to say, things that are we do in the world that a jury of our peers really can judge and can understand and see as matters of exterior actions. So here's another way to put it. If in my heart I hate whoever, and I sit at home and I just think hateful thoughts, I don't think that should be a crime. Now, I think it's bad. I think it's morally bad. I think the person would improve if they had love of God and love of neighbor in their heart. But if I'm just at home filled with hate and I have whatever uh, thoughts in my mind that is hateful of whatever group, I would say I'm not a very morally good person, but I would not say that that should be illegal, that the government should you know, come in and arrest me and you've got hate in your heart and therefore we're going to put you in prison. I would say that goes beyond the legitimate sphere of governmental authority to judge and to punish me for the hate that I may or may not have in my heart. I think really what the government needs to do is judge my actions. So if I'm murdering people, if I'm stealing from people, if I'm kidnapping people, I should be punished for those bad actions. 
But I don't think really it's the government's job, in my view, to judge my heart and to look into the interior of my heart as if the government were God and try to figure out whether I'm filled with hate or filled with love or filled with some mix of, of both. But that's really just my own opinion. I don't think the church has any official teaching on that. Well, I wanted to ask, uh, kind of close us out, um, about what Catholics can do to promote a culture of human dignity. What can we, what are ways that we can develop that kind of a culture? Are there any areas um, in our culture where it seems like human dignity is being disrespected? What can Catholics do to bring healing to those areas to, to promote a, a culture of dignity? Yeah, I would say that there's both personal and political dimensions to, the, to how we can respond and affirm human dignity. So let me talk about both. On the personal level, it seems to me that we can really affirm and promote human dignity by our own personal interactions and relationships. So when we're talking to people and we're interacting with our neighbors and colleagues and friends and people at work and whatever, there's going to be things about them that are uh, not wonderful in our perspective, at least. But I think that we should keep in mind the words uh, that are found in Philippians, that it says there, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. So when we're interacting with people, I think if we can keep these words in mind, what we'll be on the lookout for are the things that are true, good, beautiful, et cetera, in them. And that I think is a really important thing, especially for people that we interact with that may not be our cup of tea, that may not be our political party, that may not be of our same race or sexual orientation or whatever. All those people uh, are people that I think we should be especially keen to show love and respect to. And I think this is uh, really a duty for us if we're Christians, if we're followers of Jesus, to try to really love and show respect for those that we find in our everyday life. And I should clarify, loving someone does not mean agreeing with them. Loving with someone does not mean accepting their political views or doing whatever they tell us to do. Because sometimes love demands, in fact, love always demands that we be truthful and honest. And so I think St. Edith Stein had a great line when she said that there is no uh, truth without love and there's no love without truth. So truth and love really have to go together. And so in our interactions with others, especially people that we disagree with and find a little bit hard to take and maybe different views on things, I think we should try to, the best we can, combine truthful uh, interactions, but also very much loving interactions. If we can tell the truth in love, I think that's gonna move us forward in the personal realm. Now in the political realm, I think we also can move forward because not all political parties are created equal and not all political platforms and political positions are equally affirming of human dignity. So there are some views that hold that, for instance, human beings prior to birth do not have human dignity, that human beings prior to birth are just a blob of cells or are just so-called products of conception. And that in fact, there's nothing wrong at all with choosing to end the life of a human being prior to birth. Now, if we're gonna be consistent, if we're gonna hold that all human beings have human dignity, like the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights holds, well, it seems to me that that would include human beings prior to birth. And our law already does that to a degree. So in California, um, there, the law holds, for instance, that if I murder a pregnant woman 
I can be held responsible and liable for double murder, the murder of the pregnant or the woman and also the murder of her daughter. And I think that's uh, the way the law uh, is in many other respects. Now, the law, of course, at least currently, is inconsistent. But we can hope that the law becomes more consistent and that the law respects and protects all human beings, those that are born and also those that are waiting to be born. So that's just one example of a way in which we can work politically to promote human dignity. I like the what you are saying about the promoting dignity in our personal lives and how we treat people and raising my own children and everything. I've, you, I've come to better appreciate the role of just good manners um, or being polite is a way of treating all people with dignity um, or, or that good manners is a way of, of treating all people with a basic kind of respect, whether you agree with them or even if you don't particularly like them. That's what good manners, the idea behind manners, that's what it is. Yeah, no, I couldn't, I, I totally agree with you. I, I do think that treating people courteously is a way of showing them respect because it's a way really of treating them as you would wish to be treated. I mean, very few of us enjoy having people yell at us and call us bad names and, you know, mock us. I, I you know, I don't, I've never met anyone actually who, who enjoys that. But treating people courteously is something that I think people people appreciate it. You know, you appreciate when I treat you courteously. I appreciate if you treat me courteously. And look, that doesn't mean we'll always agree. Um, human beings have been disagreeing from the very beginning of time. But what we can do, we can't always agree, but what we can always do is we can always uh, not harm each other, right? Not kill each other just because we disagree. But also I think that we can treat each other with a basic respect, which includes treating people with a kind of, courtesy and politeness, which does show a respect for the person. Professor Kayser, it's really been a pleasure talking to you. And um, I also appreciate not only you doing this podcast, but you contributing the essay, not only this essay, but another one that we have from you forth, uh, that's forthcoming. So uh, I appreciate all of the, the time you've, you've put into to helping us out. So thank you so much. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you, Mary, too. I appreciate yeah. talking to both of you. And uh, hopefully we can talk again sometime. Thank you. We've been talking with Christopher Kayser about the meaning of human dignity, why it matters for religious freedom. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. <laughs>